Let's return to God in prayer before we get into the Word. Our Father, we pray you would nourish us by your Word this morning, cause our our roots of faith to, to go down deep, to be planted by streams of water, so that our faith will grow, that we will bear fruit, that we will be strong and healthy in faith. By your Spirit, Father, open our eyes to see your truth, soften our hearts to submit to your truth. Father, as your word and sacrament teach us and admonish us this morning, may it be that uh, we all one day will be presented to Christ mature. In his name we pray, amen. Stand and read God's word together. First Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Having, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Amen. This is God's word. be seated. You'll flip over to to Mark chapter 4. I want to begin there this morning. Mark chapter 4. Mark 4, and I'm going to read through uh, 1 or 2 through 9. And he that is Jesus, was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Another seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Another seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. I want to focus on the seeds that fell on the rocks, on the rocky soil. And Jesus explains this parable to his uh, disciples, and he says in verses 16 and 17, this is how he explains the seeds on the rock, the rocky ground. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So as a pastor, I think I would be remiss if I didn't at least seek to prepare 
the sheep to suffer, to suffer persecution. So I think it would be partly laid at my feet if there were some who were sown on rocky soil and had no root in themselves and were not prepared in the instance of persecution for our faith. Now Peter here, uh, we've been discussing this for a while, has been giving us much in the way of fertile soil that we can take root in uh, for that possibility. And uh, For a Christian with no roots, Kind of that scorching heat of the sun that comes up and there's the little plant and it, it gets fried by the sun of persecution. For the Christian that has no roots, if, if it takes root and it grows deep roots, suddenly that sun becomes the means by which we photosynthesize, that we grow, that we experience growth. So Peter here gives us three basic reasons or things that we can sink our roots into so that we will persevere in the occasion of suffering for our faith. So the first reason that we can persevere for, through suffering is that it is a blessing. It's a, the suffering for righteousness' sake is a blessing. Secondly, we can persevere because Christ is Lord. And thirdly, we persevere because we know all men will suffer for one thing or another, but we have, as Christians, a, a superior, a higher calling, a higher suffering to which we're called to. So we'll begin in verse 13 with this idea that we persevere in righteousness through suffering uh, precisely because it is a blessing. He says in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good. So just as a general rule in life, if you do good, if you lead a righteous life, if you obey the government, if you you know live in try to live in unity with your your people around you, your spouse, um, if you do hard work for your employer or honest, uh, these types of righteous things, generally as a principle, that will work out for your good. I think that's his point here. This is sort of a rhetorical question. Who really is going to harm you if you're if you're about doing good, if you're zealous to to do good? God's principles of life actually work and they work to give us a happy life. We read last week from Peter quoted Psalm 24 uh, or 34 beginning in verse 10 here. This is the context in which we read this. He says, "Whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So there's that principle. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him do good. And that generally works out. But in verse 14 he says, But even if you should... Suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Um, this construction here in the Greek is very rare. I, I had read about it before in books, you know, read about it in exegetical geographic, but I'd never seen one in the wild. <laughs> uh, it, it's kind of a contingent phrase, but it's more, it's, it's even more contingent. It's more like a remote possibility that if this might someday happen to you, is the construction. 
So he says, even if this should happen, generally, as a rule, if you are zealous for good, who's going to harm you for it? But perhaps if that should happen, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, even then you will be blessed. So in Peter's mind here, I think the harm for doing good is removed not by the removal of the suffering itself, but by flipping it on its head, by saying it's not harm if you suffer, but in fact it's blessing, it's actually good for you. Um, consider chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 of this book. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see there that our trials, our persecution, test our faith. They prove the worth of our faith. And not only that, but they ultimately result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the type of blessing that we're talking about here that Peter suggests that we have when we suffer. So I think we need to remember when we're facing persecution for righteousness' sake, when we're kind of feeling that pressure, that it's a blessing to us, that suffering yields steadfastness and maturity, as James tells us. Consider it all joy when you suffer various trials, for they produce steadfastness. Also, suffering, uh, in suffering, we share in Christ's experience. Uh, it provides us, as we'll see, an opportunity to bear witness to our hope. Suffering for Christ is, ultimately, it's an evidence of our union with Him. He says, we will suffer. So, first, we persevere in righteousness through suffering and persecution precisely because it is a blessing to us. Now next here in uh, verses 14 and 15, we persevere through suffering for righteousness' sake because Christ is Lord. So that suffering for righteousness' sake, if possibly you should suffer for it, uh, that's scary. You know, I, we have a lot of fires at work. We burn brush piles. And I maybe I'm just morbid and weird, but... When I stand there and look at this big fire, I always think about like the 14th, 15th century. I can't help myself. It's like, what, what would I do? You know, I, if if that was facing me, and I could feel that heat from 50 feet away, how would I respond? I think it's that fear, that heat of that fear, that would cause those rootless people from Mark to to fall away, to say, I'm done. But Peter here grounds us. He says in 14b, he says, Do not fear them or be troubled. Or more literally, do not fear their terror. Matthew uh, chapter 10. Verse 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body but can kill the soul. Rather fear him, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Notice here what what Peter contrasts with fear. He doesn't say, you know, don't be afraid, man up, 
You can, you can take it. He contrasts something with fear. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So the two are contrasted with one another. This is the means by which we con- cast out fear. By honoring Christ the Lord is holy in our hearts. This is a quote or an allusion to Isaiah chapter 8. And in Isaiah 8, the Lord is threatening to send Assyria down for punishment. And it's scary. He says in verses, in beginning in verse 5 of chapter 8, the Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh, that flow gently and rejoice over resin in the son of Remelah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. That's scary. And he says, it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. So this, this water, this king of Assyria, it's not going to drown him, but it's going to get right here. That That is terrifying. He goes on to say in verse 11 to Isaiah, The Lord spoke to me thus with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. So that's the principle Peter points us here to. Don't be afraid of those people who can burn your body. Be afraid of the Lord. Respect the Lord. Have fear for the Lord. And that will cast out your fear. Yahweh is far more terrifying of a force than these people are. And Christ here is identified with Yahweh. First Peter. Christ is ultimately the supreme ruler. He is our Lord. He is king of all. He is the final judge. And he's worthy of our obedience, worthy of our worship. He's our savior and he's the punisher of the wicked. Christ is Lord and we set him apart as holy in our hearts. Uh, not just intellectual assent, but in our hearts we have this deep conviction that Christ is Lord then nothing that man does can dethrone him. So if we believe in our hearts that Christ is Lord, our faith won't be shaken. We won't bend under that pressure because we know that His word and promises are of the Lord and they are more real to us than the flames of persecution. And Jesus, we know in His sovereignty, has us right where He wants us. He didn't make a mistake even if we're undergoing persecution like this man in Turkey is. Jesus has him there for a purpose. So no one else's demands can trump those of the true Lord. No threat can change reality. So we sanctify Christ as Lord. Uh, first, by recognizing he's, he's the Christ, He's the Messiah, and that He is in fact Yahweh. The man Jesus is God Himself. We can consider and spend time and energy reflecting on who He is in His person and His attributes. And I think even in the smaller trials of life, in preparation for those that may come, we can exercise submission even now. 
So Peter continues on here, and really I think what it comes down to is this question, uh, where is your hope? What is your hope in? If it's ultimately in comfort and respect of your fellow men here on earth, then we will have fear. We will compromise in the face of persecution. But if it's in Christ and in His promises, then we will honor Christ and we will communicate that our hope is in Him. Verse 15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's a famous verse. That's the apologetics verse, right? You know, you need to be prepared. You need to be ready to make a defense. You need to go out and get a degree in Christian philosophy so that you can win all of your arguments. You need to be ready. (laughs) I think that that verse really uh, gets over, hyper overextended to the point of not being... Uh, helpful anymore. We do need to be ready, but I think it's more the idea that rather than buckle under the attacks, we will stand and we will defend and we will speak out with that which we, for which we are being persecuted. We will answer with our hope. So the question is, are we ready to answer the question, why do you hold out hope? Why do you continue to hope in this Jesus fellow? And our answer is not necessarily, well, have you ever read this book about creation? And, and uh, you know, Have you become a theist? And uh, Rather, it's because Jesus is my Lord. Because He reigns now. Because He will return. And because He's promised me an inheritance. Because His word never fails. Because He knows what He's doing. Christ as Lord in the heart produces that kind of unflinching witness. But I think Peter is aware of the temptation in answering our attackers, our persecutors, to be hostile. We want to be hostile. We want to say, you fool, don't you know you are opposing God? You are going to get what's coming to you. Just wait and see. You don't have a prayer, buddy. But he tells us to be gentle, to answer in gentleness. In verse 15, give a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect and having a good conscience. We don't want to sin in our defending of our hope. In essence, we want to keep the ball of sin in their court. When justice is served on the last day, we want our accusers and our attackers to be the ones hanging our heads, not ourselves, for how we treated them. Rather, we're to have gentleness in our response. Uh, I love Colossians 4. gives us some clarity here. Paul tells us, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So rather than striking out with venom against our persecutors, we do as Jesus did, as we've talked before, rather than violating in return, we exercise forgiveness and we speak with grace. Finally, our last point here 
is that all men suffer. We, we persevere under persecution because we know that all men suffer, either for good or for evil. Uh, verse 17, For it is better to suffer for good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So practically here, I think we go back to God's principles work. Uh, suffering for evil, for example, um, jail is bad. We don't want to suffer for evil. It's better to suffer for good, for something virtuous, than to, say, um, deal with drug addiction or something like this. Um, eternally speaking, we know that the fires, you know, those fires that I see at work, they're very short. You'd be dead in, in 20 minutes. Uh, practically speaking, that's much shorter than an eternity in hell. Um, theologically here, if it is God's will, he says, suffering is always given by God's hands and for God's purposes. And so we know as Christians that his purposes are good, and so we have that privilege of a superior suffering, suffering for the good rather than for the evil. So we persevere in persecution. We, uh, Peter gave us these, these things to hold on to, to sink our roots into. First, that who's going to harm us if we're doing good? But if we do get harmed for doing good, we are blessed anyways. And we know that Christ is the Lord. We regard Him as holy in our hearts. And so we know He is wise in our persecutions. And that suffering for good is better than suffering for evil. So I have a quote that I want to close with from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We know he suffered for his faith under Nazi Germany and even died for it. And he has a great quote here. He says, Pain is a holy angel who shows us treasures that we would otherwise remain for, forever hidden. Through him, men and women have become greater than through all the joys of the world. It must be, and so I tell myself this in my present situation over and over again, the pain of suffering and longing which can often be felt even physically must be there, and we can and need, cannot and need not take it away. But it needs to be overcome every time. And thus there is an even holier angel than the one of pain. That is, the one of joy in God. So we suffer, we suffer well by realizing that we have joy in God even through our pain and even ultimately because of our pain. Close there. Let's take our hymnals again and stand the same. Be thou my vision, six forty two. Six forty two.